Welcome to the Michigan Constitution Podcast, where the citizens of the Mitten State seek the pleasant peninsula between their state and federal identities through a deeper understanding of how Michigan's Constitution and its defining case law affects their everyday lives. Your host, Tony Snyder, is a licensed Michigan attorney with more than a decade of experience in private and government practice. Through this podcast, you'll better understand the unique characteristics of Michigan's supreme law and probably learn a few fun facts about federalism, too. And now, here's Tony. Welcome back to episode 33 of the Michigan Constitution Podcast. We're going to conclude our Article 1, Section 12 discussion about habeas corpus within our Michigan Constitution. Now, last time we got together, I gave you a relatively long historical timeline on how habeas corpus came to be, and I gave you what is considered to be the foundational habeas corpus case in Michigan. Now we're going to take this podcast and we're going to discuss the rest of the cases that kind of build upon that foundation. But first, your spoonful of legalese. The purpose of this podcast is merely to teach you what's in the Michigan Constitution. Each podcast, we'll review a different article section, we'll talk about what it means, and we'll review Michigan case law, which helps us to better understand the effects of those constitutional provisions. Here's what this podcast is not. It is not legal advice, and it is not legal expertise. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Although I am a licensed attorney in the state of Michigan, I make no warranties as to the veracity of the statements I make within this podcast. First of all, I don't practice constitutional law, I practice administrative law. Second, the laws change on a day-to-day basis, as does case law. What might be applicable the day I make a statement about the Michigan Constitution could very well be outdated the day I post the podcast. If you think you're going to become a Michigan Constitutional Scholar because of my podcast, you're sadly mistaken. You do better with a Ouija board and a Magic 8-Ball. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. If you need Michigan legal advice, you would be well served to contact the State Bar of Michigan and ask for their lawyer referral service program for a referral to an attorney who specializes in your legal matter. The next case, Billingsley v. Michigan Department of Mental Health, which was a Michigan Court of Appeals case from 1969, deals with habeas corpus and a person in a mental hospital. See, Mr. Billingsley was found not guilty by reason of insanity at his trial for unlawfully driving away an automobile. As such, he was ordered committed to the Department of Mental Health pursuant to a Michigan law. The Michigan Department of Health placed Mr. Billingsley in the Ionia State Hospital until 1968, at which time he was released on convalescent status. Any person who is tried for a crime and is acquitted by the court or jury by reason of insanity shall be committed immediately by order of the court to the Department of Mental Health for treatment in an appropriate state hospital until discharged. The person shall not be released on convalescent care or final discharge without first being evaluated and recommended for release by the Center for Forensic Psychiatry. Every such patient, while on leave of convalescent status, shall remain in the legal custody of the medical superintendent of the mental hospital. The patient shall be subject, at any time, to be taken back within the enclosure of said hospital for any reason that may be satisfactory to the medical superintendent. Full power to retake and return any such patient to the mental hospital is hereby expressly conferred upon the medical superintendent. A written order shall be sufficient warrant commanding all peace officers to take into custody and hold the patient. It shall be the duty of the sheriff, upon the request of any peace officer who has taken into custody of such patient, 
to receive and confine in the county jail until the patient is returned to the institution. So the question the court had to deal with was, how do you handle a person who is no longer in the care of the mental hospital, but instead is released on convalescent status? Because that's the matter at issue that had arisen in, in June 1968. Mr. Billingsley filed a petition, uh, a habeas corpus petition to be specific, but it was denied by a judge on the grounds that the existence of the statute that we've just been talking about, it already gives a judicial remedy for the release from a state hospital, and it happened to preclude this habeas corpus option. And remember, the purpose of habeas corpus is to test the legality of a person's detention when restraining a person from that liberty. And in this instance, the idea was when Mr. Billingsley was being released to convalescent status, he still had certain obligations by the state of Michigan that he had to satisfy. So the Michigan Court of Appeals starts by saying just because the person leaves the mental hospital to go to a convalescent home does not mean the person is a free person, right? They're essentially releasing you from the mental hospital to instead live in a convalescent home. And if the person is not free to come and go as they please or to live their life without the supervision of government, then habeas corpus is at play. Now, what do I mean? Well, the order to allow defendant to leave the Ionia Mental Hospital was with the understanding that Mr. Billingsley would go live with his family members in Cleveland, Ohio. While living with those relatives, defendant Billingsley was required to report periodically to the Cleveland State Hospital. He could not travel outside a 50-mile radius of Cleveland without permission. He could not marry he could not drink alcohol, and he could not change his residence without first obtaining permission from the Cleveland State Hospital. I think it's obvious to say that Mr. Billingsley was clearly under certain limitations of what his freedoms and liberty really were to him based on these state requirements. Therefore, Mr. Billingsley was arguing if he has these sorts of requirements placed upon him, a habeas corpus hearing to test his sanity should be allowed. That's what was denied to him by the Ionia judge was the opportunity to have a habeas corpus hearing to determine his sanity. But the Michigan Court of Appeals, they did say they thought the judge got it wrong. They believe in action for habeas corpus to inquire into the cause of a prisoner's detention can be brought by anyone restrained of their liberty. And because the definition of prisoner includes an inmate in a mental institution, then habeas corpus is applicable to Mr. Billingsley. A sanity hearing is something which would fall under the habeas corpus umbrella, our court said. The Michigan Court of Appeals points out that this type of hearing is understood to be afforded by both the laws at issue and Article 1, Section 12 of the Michigan Constitution. And for that reason, Mr. Billingsley was to be given a sanity determination hearing prior to being moved to Cleveland. And the reason Mr. Billingsley would want this is because if Mr. Billingsley was determined to not be insane, quote unquote, at that point in time, why should he then have to go and be placed in the Cleveland, you know, uh, state hospital purview? Why should he still have these uh, requirements placed upon him by a government? So that was ultimately what the court was saying is, no, no, you got to give Mr. Billingsley his his habeas corpus hearing. Now, if it's determined that he still is 
mentally deficient and needs to have uh, some sort of government, in this instance, Ohio government, supervising him, well, then at least he's been giving his due process, specifically his habeas corpus, right. Our next case of People v. Collins, a Michigan Court of Appeals case from 1971, again addresses the concept of a right to a speedy trial as part of our Article 1, Section 12, habeas corpus protection. Here, Defendant Collins was arrested and charged with armed robbery on January 5, 1969. Fifteen months later, on April 6, 1970, his trial finally commenced and he was subsequently convicted that same day. While awaiting sentencing on his conviction, he was out on bail, and apparently poor Mr. Collins just couldn't keep himself out of trouble, because while out on bail and awaiting sentencing on his conviction, he went and got himself arrested for a new crime, and he was in jail on that new charge for six months. And while in jail, awaiting the trial for this newest offense, his attorney never brought forth a demand for a speedy trial, nor did the attorney seek to have Mr. Collins released on a writ of habeas corpus. The court starts off by acknowledging the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus is the right to be admitted to bail, if not indicted, or to be discharged if not tried within a clearly defined period of time. A clear exemption to that as we've established from the Daniel case, is if the people are unable to present their proofs through their known witnesses. Maybe said another way, if the prosecutor has witnesses who would be able to help convict the defendant, but those witnesses are temporarily unavailable for whatever reason, the courts can continue the delay of a defendant's trial for a reasonable amount of time. Our court accentuates the belief that it is incumbent on the court to implement the constitutional rights of the issuance of the writs of habeas corpus by providing clearly defined, unequivocal procedures for the release of persons held in jail for an undue period of time awaiting that trial. They again go back to the 1679 Habeas Corpus Act from England. A. Periodically, at clearly established periods of time, it should be the absolute duty of a judge to require that there be brought before him all persons held in jail after a designated time and to give them an opportunity to demand their right to an immediate trial. And B, if this right is exercised and, nevertheless, the case is not tried within a prescribed period of time, then unless the people are unable during that time to present their witnesses, the defendant should be discharged from imprisonment without further ado upon application for the issuance of a writ of habeas corpus. The court noted it is the duty of the judicial system to see to it that the judges and personnel, like attorneys for defendants, for example, are provided so that the trial of criminal cases, particularly cases where the defendant is sitting in jail, is not delayed by accumulated backlogs of other cases that have not been tried. The failure to provide the necessary means, the inability of the people to present their witnesses, and to prove their cases because of an accumulated chronic backlog of cases that cannot justify the suspension and denial of our basic constitutional right of a speedy trial. Said another way, the courts have to stay on top of the caseload which is coming at them. This includes the judges themselves helping to ensure the trials are had and the defendant's speeding trials are ensured. 
but it also is telling criminal defense attorneys, you also need to stay on top of your caseload and zealously defend the constitutional rights of your criminal defense clients. Now, to be clear, the Michigan Court of Appeals understands that the precise amount of time it should take to get a case through the process is going to depend upon many factors that we've been discussing. But at a minimum, both judges and attorneys should be monitoring how long a defendant has been sitting in a jail cell awaiting trial. If the case is just sitting dormant, that's highly unacceptable. If, on the other hand, the case hasn't moved because there are different motions that are being held and appeals are being addressed, well, that, our court said, is an entirely different matter. At least there is some amount of legal activity occurring, albeit behind the scenes, to ensure the people of the state of Michigan and the criminal defendants are having their interests properly defended. And this Court of Appeals slate of judges directly tackles the idea of criminal defendants who are out on bail while awaiting their trial date versus, say, the criminal defendant who's just sitting in jail this entire time. The court argued that the Michigan Supreme Court has looked at defendants out on bond as having the onus upon them to bring forth a habeas corpus request. So again, just to be clear, in this case, this Court of Appeals slate of judges pointed to the Michigan Supreme Court and they said those Michigan Supreme Court justices have ultimately determined when the defendant is out on bond, it's upon them, the, the defendant, to bring forth a habeas corpus request because at least they're out sleeping in their own bed, going to work, having family parties, right? But then our Court of Appeal judges come back and say, for this case, it's possible that the Michigan Supreme Court might believe that a person sitting in jail while awaiting his trial maybe gets a little more slack cut to them because they didn't make they didn't want to make a definitive and sweeping pronouncement. They did at least rule in favor of Mr. Collins here for this case, doing so because they don't want to step on the toes of the Michigan Supreme Court. Remember, they are the highest court in the state of Michigan. The Michigan Supreme Court hasn't truly said one way or the other. Looking into their crystal ball, the Court of Appeals judges thought this might be where the Michigan Supremes would go. So they said, just for this particular case, we are going to rule in favor of Mr. Collins and say, when you're in jail, you do get some slack cut to you. And they held that the demand requirement of a speedy trial for a person sitting in jail should be viewed favorably to that defendant. The court even pointed out that in some jurisdictions, those jurisdictions require the prosecutor to move the case forward with no action being asked for or taken by the defendant. And if the prosecutor cannot or does not take that action to move that case forward, the case is to be dismissed in favor of the defendant with no possibility of future criminal charges being brought for that alleged crime. Now, although that wasn't the final outcome here in our case, what it did is it put on notice to judges, prosecutors, and criminal defense attorneys that they must stay on top of criminal cases because these types of cases where you've got people sitting in jail just waiting for their day in court, that is paramount to what the Article 1, Section 12 protection in the Michigan Constitution means. And listen, I totally get where the Court of Appeals is coming from. If two people are in a lawsuit over a civil matter, and that could be, you know, like a personal injury case, maybe a, a car accident lawsuit, 
or maybe we're talking about the uh, contestation of a will or a trust. Maybe we're, we're, we're waiting on a, on a trial over a divorce in child custody matters. Well, absolutely, all of those things are, are, are important. They're not as important as a person having their criminal case brought to a jury and a verdict being rendered against a defendant. Add on top of that, if that defendant is sitting in jail, again, as opposed to having some freedoms while out on bond and just awaiting the trial, well, those incarcerated persons, they deserve even much more so the privilege of a speedy trial. This next case, People versus Johnson, a Michigan Court of Appeals case from 1975, is, I think, a pretty interesting case. Here we have a criminal defendant, which is Mr. Johnson, who was originally charged with a crime, which if he would have been found guilty of, it would have resulted in a possible maximum five-year prison sentence. And that's important. So remember that. If, if he would have pled guilty to the original crime to which he was charged, the maximum jail time would have been five years prison. But instead, what he was offered and subsequently accepted was an offer of gross indecency and assault with intent to rob while being unarmed. On Mr. Johnson's sentencing day, he was sentenced to three to five years of prison on each charge to which he pled guilty, but they were then to run concurrent to one another. So effectively said in, a, in, in another way, as soon as he satisfied the first three to five years of, of incarceration on that first conviction, he would then start and serve another three to five years for that second conviction. But here's where the problem occurred. Apparently, there was an error in Mr. Johnson's pre-trial report. Sidebar. A pre-sentence report is essentially what it sounds like. A probation officer who works for the Michigan Department of Corrections will write up a report to the judge with a recommendation regarding what sort of prison time, if, if any, the defendant should receive. Now, there's a lot that goes into this pre-sentence report, such as the basic outline of what factually happened in the underlying case, how the defendant was involved in, in that crime, what sort of criminal history the defendant has, how likely the defendant is to reoffend in the future, and then ultimately a general grid based on varying factors, which gives a low end and a high end of what amount of prison time the defendant could face. Now, it's up to the defense attorney and the prosecutor to convince the judge where in that high versus low end of incarceration the defendant should be sentenced. Obviously, the defense attorney wants his client to be sentenced to the low end of the incarceration spectrum, whereas the, prosecutor, whereas the prosecution wants the defendant to be sentenced at the higher end of the prison allocation. But there was an error in the pre-sentence report. The probation agent accidentally used the original charge against Mr. Johnson when determining what the possible low and high end prison time was going to be. See, and we talked about this already, but there was an error in the pre-sentence report. The probation agent accidentally used the original charge against Mr. Johnson when determining what that possible low and high end prison time was going to be. Originally, and we've talked about this already, he was only facing a five-year maximum prison time crime. 
but the assault with intent to rob but unarmed is a 15-year maximum crime. So effectively, what happened is a way to try to resolve the case. The prosecutor offered a different charge to Mr. Johnson, and he accepted it. Now, what I don't know is if the prosecutor didn't know that this offer was actually a higher prison time than the original crimes prison time, or if he tricked the defense attorney and the defense attorney didn't check to see if there was a three times higher prison sentence. But regardless, Mr. Johnson did ultimately plead guilty to a crime, which was a 15-year maximum, despite originally being charged with just a five-year maximum. It was subsequently caught, and the trial court brought the defendant back to the court so that the defendant could be resentenced with this corrected information. And if you guessed the error meant a longer jail time for the defendant, you'd be right. Based on the updated pre-sentence report with all the accurate information in it, the judge now sentenced Mr. Johnson from what originally was three to five to now five to 15 years in prison on that assault with attempt to rob but being unarmed charge. To be clear, if Mr. Johnson would only have pled guilty to the original crime for which he was charged, it would have been a three to five year prison sentence. Instead, he ended up pleading guilty to a crime which warranted 5 to 15 years of prison time. And guess what? The Michigan Court of Appeals approves of what the trial court did. They said that the original sentence was erroneous because it was based on an offense to which the defendant did not plead guilty to. One more time, let me say that correctly. Mr. Johnson was sentenced to an erroneous charge. He did not plead guilty to this 3 to 5 years. To the contrary, the Court of Appeals said that after discovering the error, the trial court very much had the authority to issue a writ of habeas corpus and bring the defendant back into court to be sentenced to the crime for which he actually did plead guilty to. Essentially, this was a very major screw-up for the defense attorney to not catch the charge to which the defendant was pleading guilty was, in actuality, a far greater prison sentence than the original crime being charged. And with that, Mr. Johnson's three to five year prison sentence was supported as being an increase to five to 15 years. Our final case on habeas corpus is the 2003 Michigan Court of Appeals case of Morales versus the Michigan Parole Board. The main question being asked here was what, if any, type of appeal protection does a prisoner have if they are denied parole by the Michigan Parole Board? As you know from this podcast, a prisoner has the right to have a parole board determine if they should be released from prison prior to their sentence being completed. But what if the parole board denies you the right to be paroled? Do you, Mr. or Ms. Prisoner, have a right to appeal that decision by the parole board? Well, spoiler alert, negative good buddy was the essential answer of the Michigan Court of Appeals when Mr. Morales brought forth this lawsuit. The Michigan Court of Appeals laid out the three instances where an appeal review exists by a court for an individual who is challenging an administrative body's decision. Those three avenues are 1. Review pursuant to a procedure specified in a statute applicable to the particular agency. 2. The method of review for contested cases under the Administrative Procedures Act, or three, 
an appeal pursuant to Section 631 of the Revised Judiciary Act. Right away, the Michigan Court of Appeals tells us that options one and two are unavailable for a prisoner because those two options are for civil matters, whereas a person in prison falls under the criminal umbrella. So then the only other possible option for a prisoner to have his or her parole decision reviewed by a court is if it's allowed under the Michigan Revised Judicature Act, and specifically it's section 31 of the act which reads as follows. An appeal shall lie from any order, decision, or opinion of any state board, commission, or agency authorized under the laws of this state to promulgate rules from which an appeal or other judicial review has not otherwise been provided for by law, to the circuit court of the county in which the appellant is a resident, which court shall have and exercise jurisdiction with respect thereto as to non-injury cases. Such appeal shall be made in accordance with the rules of the Supreme Court. The Michigan Court of Appeals says this is not a valid argument. They rule that neither the act in question mentions the prisoner's right to appeal a parole board, nor do the aforementioned Supreme Court rules. As a matter of fact, the court goes so far as to rule only the parole board has the authority to determine a prisoner's parole opportunity. Now, here's where habeas corpus comes into play. The Court of Appeals judges state that in the unlikely scenario where a parole board has denied a prisoner exclusively on the basis of his race, religion, national origin, well, sure, then a complaint for habeas corpus would be proper. But that's not the case here. Regarding an action for habeas corpus, the Court of Appeals has long held A complaint for habeas corpus is designed to test the legality of detaining an individual and restraining him of his liberty. If a legal basis for detention is lacking, a judge must order the release of the detainee from confinement. However, the writ of habeas corpus deals only with radical defects which render a judgment or proceeding absolutely void. A radical defect in jurisdiction contemplates an act or omission by state authorities that clearly contravenes an express legal requirement in existence at the time of the act or omission. Therefore, our Michigan Court of Appeals held there is no right to an appeal of a parole board decision for a prisoner. It's not a private license, you know, as required under the first two appeal options, nor is it a specified protection under the Michigan Revised Judicature Act. But the Court of Appeals judges did fall all over themselves to make clear in their decision it does not leave the prisoner without any recourse to have a judicial review regarding the legitimacy of the prisoner's uh, inmates' imprisonment. They absolutely have the legal tool, which is the Michigan Constitution's Article 1, Section 12, habeas corpus protection. And that's it. Those are the things that I think you need to know about habeas corpus and what that protection entails. Remember, we're talking about bond. We're talking about right to a speedy trial. Essentially, you being brought before a judge and forcing the government to say, judge, here's the reason why we currently have somebody locked up in jail. Here's the reason why we've brought these criminal charges against them. That is, that is a constitutional protection that we have known for hundreds of years. And I believe that these cases were the most important and relevant ones to kind of highlight how that plays out in a real life scenario. And that's going to do it for episode number 33 of the Michigan Constitution podcast. You can reach me online at TonySnyder.com or I'm on Twitter at Tony Snyder. We'll talk to you next time. The Michigan Constitution podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not offer legal advice or create an attorney-client relationship. This podcast is hosted by Tony Snyder. 
For more information, visit TonySnyder.com, send an email to podcast at TonySnyder.com, or follow Tony on Twitter at TonySnyder. Catch new episodes on the 1st and 15th of each month. (laughs) 